This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. This week, we want to discuss the music and the poetry of one of the most gifted hip-hop lyricists of all time. As of this recording, he is the 45th top-selling artist of all time, according to the Recording Industry Association of America. And yes, we're talking about Tupac Shakur. Uh, his face is as recognizable as Elvis and Michael Jackson, um, but his name evokes a lot of mixed messages. Uh, some consider him a hero, others a monetizing villain. Uh, with over 700 original songs, uh, movies, poetry, and, and almost five years of continual presence in the media, there's no doubt that a case could be made for either one of those things. And um, his music championed the urban poor. It celebrated mothers raising their children out of poverty. Um, it exposed injustices in the legal system uh, and demanded a response for corruption in law enforcement. And uh, all of this is honorable and truthful and noble. But on the other side, his music also glorified violence, including violence against women it celebrated illegal drug use, and it romanticized a controversial code of conduct that he called thug life. Um, unfortunately, on September 16, 1993, the life of this young and talented international icon uh, was abruptly and violently ended at the age of 25. And yet, his legacy and his influence continue. Uh, when he died, Tupac had only released four albums. However, as of this podcast, he has 21 albums to his name. Ten have earned platinum, multi-platinum, or diamond certification. Um, in April of 2017, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this is really one of the highest honors for a musician. And he was selected in his first year of eligibility and was the first solo hip-hop artist to do so. Well, you know, his impact is just beyond dispute, and it continues to grow. It doesn't matter if you like his music or not. You can compare him to Elvis or Michael Jackson, and I think it's right to do that. But in some ways, 
he resembles uh, John Lennon or Kurt Cobain because he seems to have spoken for a generation. His picture, it's on T-shirts, it's on bumper stickers, it's on walls because he seems to represent something. His music is used as anthems for people's lives. Most notably, the song Changes was used as an anthem for the worldwide protest against the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Today, we want to explore his work and some of the influences that shaped him as a person. We can only speculate, you know, now how his life and his voice would have changed or developed had he been given a chance to mature into adulthood. Would he have gotten more involved in politics and social justice like his mother? Would he have pursued a career in acting, maybe in lieu of music, like other artists like Will Smith? Would he have parted ways with Suge Knight, who some hold responsible for his death? How might his music have changed? Of course, nobody knows any of this. What we can do is admire the truthfulness, the genius, and the beauty and the art of Tupac's written word and the passion with which he spoke it. After 25 years of posthumous success, he also has earned a notable place in the literary world. If he is still being read and listened to, it's because there's something about what he says that's eternal. His words speak to man's condition on this earth, and it moves beyond the urban setting of his childhood or the political or social problems that he spoke to directly. There is something eternal about Tupac, and to use his words, he is a rose that grew from concrete. Christy, that metaphor is the title of the book of poetry that was published in 1999 by Leila Steinberg. Uh, It was compiled from handwritten poems that had been saved by Steinberg, who was his first manager. And when it was published, uh, award-winning poet and university professor Nikki Giovanni wrote a beautiful foreword introducing his poetry to the world as serious art. You know, which is something that people don't think about when they think about rap music. And I want to add, though, that if you do buy his book of poetry, the first thing you notice is that it's written and published in his own handwriting. On the left side of every page is this facsimile of his original handwritten verse. And it's cute. There's little doodles in the margins and personalized touches. His handwriting's neat. Uh, But we can also see, even in the handwriting, that there's art in his syntax and style, which is remarkable when we think about the fact that he wrote this, all these poems, as a 17-year-old kid with very limited education. You know, when I was in high school, I was never taught how to use punctuation, spelling, capitalization, or any of these strategies uh, in an unorthodox way to create meaning, and I can't imagine that He had been given a lot of guidance in that regard. I mean, his iconic style was organic. It was innate in him. When he wrote these short poems, he even, you know, he had no idea that he would be somebody one day, that anybody would be reading them. Uh, He had no idea he'd be famous. Well, you know, knowing that makes these words feel very personal and personal and almost invasive. I mean, he did not write them for publication. No, and so when we read them, we can hear his voice. Did you hear about the rose that grew from a crack in the concrete? Proving nature's laws wrong, it learned to walk. Without having feet, funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete when no one else ever cared. 
It's ironic, really, because today (laughs) everyone cares. Uh, What's even more ironic is that he is a voice that speaks for those for whom no one does care. When he was at his very best, that's what he wanted to do. The poem is metaphorical in several ways. You know, the metaphor of the rose and the concrete extend the length of the poem. He says the rose walks without feet. It's an unusual representation of a rose. The rose is anthropomorphized. In other words, it's been turned into a person. It is a rose with dreams. It breathes. The phrase, long live, you know, that phrase invokes a desire for something to live. It's traditionally associated with uh, royalty. But here the expression is juxtaposed against the apathy of a of the concrete, something that does last a long time, but it's brutal and it's ugly. And in this case, it's the concrete no one cares about. The poem is short, it's emotional, and full of literary devices. When you see it as it's printed in the book, you notice that it only has one punctuation mark, a solitary explanation exclamation point that's placed at the end of the last word, after cared. You also see that he intentionally places the numeral two every time the word T-O, two, is supposed to be used. You know, this replacement of the letters T-O for the number two is something that he carried with him throughout his entire career, including the title of his first album. Ironically, he uses it in his name. When he writes Tupac, he writes it with the number two, two P-A-C, instead of T-U, or most of the time when he writes, you know, T-O, he replaces it with the number. Well, there was, uh, was and still is a lot of speculation as to why uh, Tupac did that. You know, as far as I know, uh, Tupac never directly answered that question and just left people guessing. And I do know it may be a nod to the Black Panthers and his mother's politics. Uh, um, if you go back and look at some of the writings in the Black Panthers, we can find the same usage. And um, I've read other places where he did it to symbolically uh, represent his own duality and some of the conflicts that, that he experienced inside of himself. Well, you know, I guess it could be both. Uh, since you referenced his mom and the Black Panthers, maybe it's time we go there. Because the story of Tupac does not start with him. It starts with his beloved mother, Afeni Shakur. Afeni gave birth to a son that she named Lesane Parrish Crooks on June 16, 1971. The child, who would soon be renamed Tupac Shakur, was born a month after she was released from prison. Uh, she was arrested with 20 other members of the New York chapter of the Black Panthers for conspiracy to commit murder and bombings. She changed her son's name to Tupac Shakur in honor of the 18th century Incan revolutionary who was killed by Spanish priests uh, when Tupac was one year old. Afeni had this to say about her son's birth. I got pregnant while I was out on bail. I never thought that I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life in jail. I was never getting out, and that's why I wanted to have this baby, because I wanted to leave something here. If I thought I was getting out, I would have never had the baby. I probably would have gotten an abortion. Gary, this would have been a radical world to be born into. What do you think? What was, or really, what is the Black Panther Party? Well, uh, remember, the 1960s in the United States, um, it was marked by the importance and really the influence of the civil rights movement, historically uh, overwhelming. And we've discussed on a podcast the leadership and the message of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. in the past. 
But the civil rights movement really extended beyond Dr. King. Uh, and he was at the center of it, but he was not the center of it. There were all different kinds of um, civil rights groups that were active during that time period. And it literally involved tens of thousands of people and, and many different perspectives of how equality could best be achieved across the country. And the movement really symbolically started with the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case. And, you know, most have seen images from the South, most notably the Montgomery bus boycott in Alabama with Rosa Parks and the March on Washington, where Dr. King uh, gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And However, the fight for civil rights really extended way beyond the South and from extended from California to New York City. And not all African-American civil rights leaders really embraced uh, Dr. King's nonviolent uh, approach and methodology. Um, one of these groups was the Black Panthers. Um, it was started in Oakland, California by two men. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. This group was revolutionary. It had a black nationalistic ideology. It was socialistic, but uh, what made it most controversial was that it was an armed group and it believed in forceful resistance. And uh, the Black Panthers had no interest in a pacifist integration. And, and they came into conflict with the state of California and even the federal government at various times. And uh, one famous example was in 1969 when events turned violent on the campus of UCLA and supporters of a different organization were murdered. And when most people hear the term Black Panthers, the violent headlines from the news is really what comes to mind first. However, the organization did do other things which garnered a lot of support in the uh, low-income black neighborhoods that they served. And uh, For example, they organized free breakfast programs for thousands of children every day, and they passed out food to elderly people, and they had volunteers in the hospitals helping the sick, and they uh, sponsored schools and opened legal aid offices that were free of charge. And you know, they created clothing distribution centers and, and free health clinics. And most of these grassroots activities were led by the women. And they embody the idea of both sides of the coin. <laughs> well, and this is how Tupac's mother got involved when she joined the organization. She was a revolutionary for sure. Uh, she was immediately inspired when she heard Bobby Seale speak. But she was also one of those women who, among other activities, she started a free breakfast program in her community. She volunteered at the Lincoln Hospital. She wrote the newspaper for her chapter of the Blank Panthers. So I think it's interesting to think about, you know, little Tupac being raised in this environment because you have violence juxtaposed with social consciousness and charity work. He grew up being taken to rallies and protests, but also serving in the community. He once said the term black power was, quote, like a lullaby when I was a kid. His stepfather, unfortunately, though, Matulu Shakur, was convicted of robbery and appeared on the FBI's 10 most wanted list by the time Tupac was 10 years old. This derailed the family dynamics. Um, his stepfather's arrest caused his mom to lose a paralegal job. She lost her home. And when she did that, she lost any kind of consistency for her two children who would spend the rest of their childhood being shuffled between relatives, living with acquaintances, and public shelters. Uh, there was uncertainty, and this uncertainty took a toll on the kids many ways. And in fact, Tupac said it affected their personalities. You know, they had to deal with all this chaos. And Tupac said the way he dealt with it was like this, and let me quote him. 
When I was young, I was quiet, withdrawn. I read a lot. I wrote poetry. I kept a diary. You know, all of that sounds uh, kind of sweet and perhaps a positive way to deal with the craziness of this kind of existence. Um, you know, these are not the sort of skills that help you survive on the streets of New York. And it's not the kind of thing that will get you the attention of a football or a basketball coach, for example. No, uh, they're not. And that's kind of why he ran into trouble. But I will say that he did come up with some positive things. Uh, and one of the things that happened to him is he got a role for a stage production, and this is pretty cool, for Raisin in the Sun. He had the role of Travis, and he was performing at the Apollo Theater there in New York City. This would be maybe the highlight for their whole family during those early years, and obviously this production, this role, made a very important impression on the young man. Shortly after the production ended, though, uh, Finney moved the family to Baltimore, and they were to live there for four years. Baltimore had a bright side, too. Tupac auditioned, and he got accepted into the very famous Baltimore School of the Arts. This school really would be the most important part of his entire formal education. It was here that he would become friends with Jada Pinkett Smith, for example, and other people who were very wealthy, some of which who are famous today. It was a rigorous school, primarily for rich kids, but Tupac was accepted, even though his reality was completely different. He lived in horrific urban poverty. I mean, the kind he would describe in his in detail in his music and draw great criticism for describing it in his music. Let me just include a few details that, that he highlights. His mother became addicted to crack, and as a result, she didn't pay the electric bill. So their apartment, and this is in Baltimore, which is not a warm place, was dark and it was cold. It was filthy. Tupac slept on a dirty mattress on the floor. There were no sheets. He, re he owned only two pairs of pants. There was very little food. And when money did come in, Afeni would send her own son out on the streets to buy sacks of crack cocaine, which he did and brought back to his mom. But if Baltimore and that kind of reality wasn't bad enough, it was not going to be the bottom. Things would get worse. Halfway through Tupac's junior year, and this is where he's, you know, filling out applications. He actually had completed applications for college. The family gets evicted from their apartment, and Afeni decided to send her children to Marin County, California, to live with a friend or in a, really an acquaintance. And that, of course, is all the way across the country. Tupac and his sister were sent by themselves. They arrived in the Bay Area, which is across from Oakland, literally with $5 in his pocket and a paper bag full of chicken wings. You know, the neighborhood that they went to was rough. Uh, they had no money. And it turned out the place where they were sent to live did not work out. So Tupac literally had nowhere to stay. I mean, his high school credits didn't transfer. He wasn't going to be able to graduate. So he did what you would expect a young man to do at that time in those conditions. He turned to the streets and illegal activity for a way of life. He made friends, had connections with drug dealers, with pimps, with other criminals. Uh, by the time he was 17, when he was meeting Layla Steinberg, you know, things even on the streets had not gone too well because it turns out he was not a very good drug dealer and the drug career wasn't working. He did, however, find something on those streets of Oakland that he could do, and he could rap. 
And that's what he did. Well, he did, and he developed a local reputation. Um, at the time, a talent scout by the name of Leela Steinberg was looking for talent in the area. And uh, Tupac, like many young aspiring artists, wanted to get her attention. And he tracked her down one day while she was reading Winnie Mandela's book out loud in a park. Uh, Tupac recognized what she was reading, and he approached her. And, you know, this impressed her, and she invited the 17-year-old to her public poetry classes, and he followed up, and, and she took him to tryouts. I bet it more than impressed her. I bet it shocked her that anybody in that environment would know <laughs> who Winnie Mandela was. Uh, and, of course, the book of poetry, The Rose That Grew From Concrete, was written in the context of her class. Uh, and they would read these poems in this little class. This was a bright spot for sure in Tupac's life. Uh, but his personal life at the time just wasn't good. His mother was still addicted to drugs. I mean, he was living at this starvation level poverty. He was struggling with hunger. He was homeless. Uh, but Layla saw talent and uh, what in the young man. The handwritten poems that Tupac wrote for the class, she kept. And these are the ones that were published after his death. Uh, I, now that we know the context of his life and the context in which he wrote the poems, I think that they're more interesting to read. So let's read a couple. They're all personal, but let's read this one that he wrote for his mother called Family Tree. Family Tree for Mother. Because we all spring from different trees does not mean we are not created equally. Is the true beauty in the tree or in the vast force in which it breathes? The tree must fight to breed among the evils of the weeds. I find greatness in the tree that grows against all odds. It blossoms in darkness and gives birth to promising pods. I was the tree who grew from the weeds and wasn't meant to be. Ashamed I'm not. In fact, I am proud of my thriving family tree. You know, we see a lot of ambiguity here, and he's playing around with... The metaphor of the tree, it's from the beginning of the poem. He compares himself to him. Uh, this time, he's not comparing himself to a rose, but to a tree. For a child, you know, he only knew poverty and rejection. It's amazing that he still sees promise in himself. This is a poem that has hope in it, not just for him, but for his mother, for his family. That last stanza. I was the tree who grew from the weeds and wasn't meant to be ashamed. I'm not, in fact. I am proud of my family tree. That's written prophetically. He wrote that before anything good happened to him. You know, one day, Tupac would win a Grammy Award nomination for a song called Dear Mama. His mother, in spite of all of her inner demons or troubles, was always a source of strength and love. Uh, here's one more that he wrote for her during those difficult days, and it's called When Your Hero Falls, For My Hero, My Mother. Let's read that one. When your hero falls from grace, all fairy tales are uncovered, myths exposed, and pain magnified. The greatest pain discovered, you taught me to be strong, but I'm confused to see you so weak. You said never to give up, and it hurts to see you welcome defeat. When your hero falls, so do the stars, and so does the perception of tomorrow. Without my hero, there is only me alone to deal with my sorrow. Your heart ceases to work, and your soul is not happy at all. What are you expected to do when your only hero falls? 
this poem is different from the other two because it doesn't use, you know, the metaphorical language. But it does have structure. There's repetition, the device we call an anaphora, when you start different lines with the same beginning words. In this case, when your hero falls, he uses that line three times, except at the end, he adds the word, your only hero falls. He capitalizes the word hero throughout the poem, which is the only word that's capitalized in the entire poem. The only other letter that's capitalized is the letter R that he uses as a stand-in for the word A-R-E. There's only one punctuation mark, and that is a period after the word sorrow. I really don't know how much poetry training Tupac had in those two and a half years in Baltimore, but these are some very modern techniques that we see modern writers using. This intentional manipulation of traditional uses of grammatical features such as punctuation and capital letters is clearly intentional and rhetorical. In this case, it expresses defiance, but he's also using these punctuation marks and these capital letters to highlight the important places in the poem. It's a sad poem. I mean, it feels a lot more sad than the other one to his mother. And um, I want us to read one more called And Tomorrow. And again, he spells the word tomorrow with a number two instead of the letters uh, in T-O in tomorrow. Today is filled with anger, fueled with hidden hate, scared of being outcast, afraid of common fate. Today is built on tragedies which no one wants to face. Nightmares to humanities and morally disgraced. Tonight is filled with rage, violence in the air. Children bred with ruthlessness because no one at home cares. Tonight I lay my head down, but the pressure never stops. Gnawing at my sanity, content when I am dropped. But tomorrow I see you change. A chance to build anew, built on spirit, intent of heart, and ideas based on truth. And tomorrow I wake with second wind and strong because of pride to know I fought with all my heart to keep my dream alive. Again, we see structure today, tonight, tomorrow. It feels simple, but it's highly structured. The word today is used twice. Today is filled with hidden hate and anger. It's filled with fear. He moves from today to tonight. But the images of the night are worse because the night brings images of rageful violence, terrifying fear that leads to the brink of sanity. But then we see tomorrow spelled with that number two. And there's the clear shift. Tomorrow is filled with hope, heart, spirit, truth. I mean, there's positive energy at this poem in this poem at the end. But where does it come from? It's definitely not coming from his environment. The only explanation given is in the second to final line. Because of pride, to know I fought with all my heart to keep my dream alive. And, of course, with Layla's help, uh, Tupac changed the course of his life. And Layla invited him to move in with her family and off the streets. And she became his manager. And by the age of 19, Tupac was a professional musician, releasing his first album titled Tupacalypse Now. And, yes, he is spelling it with the number two. And it was certified gold, and it was a pretty political piece of art. It does have battle raps, but it also has serious political commentary. And, 
There's a, a rap titled Trapped about police brutality, another one titled Words of Wisdom about racial discrimination, and one of his best uh, enduring and best well-known uh, songs is Brenda's Got a Baby. It was the second single from the album. Yeah, I'm going to read these lyrics, but I do want to include a trigger warning. It's famous, but it's incredibly sad. It's a true story about a 12-year-old child who gets pregnant by her adult cousin, a man by the name of Clarence Perry that's in real life. The events in the rap occurred in Brownsville, which is a suburb of Brooklyn. Just so you know, Perry was arrested and charged for the crime Tupac raps about in the song. I hear Brenda's got a baby, but Brenda's barely got a brain. A D-shame. The girl can hardly spell her name. That's not our problem. That's up to Brenda's family. Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now, Brenda really never knew her mom, and her dad was a junkie putting death to his arms. It's sad because I bet Brenda doesn't even know. Just because you're in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow. You can't grow. But, oh, that's a thought. My own a revelation. Do whatever it takes to resist the temptation. Brenda got herself a boyfriend. Her boyfriend was her cousin. Now let's watch the joy end. She tried to hide her pregnancy from her family, who really didn't care to see or give a dang if she went out and had a church of kids. As long as when the check came, they got first dibs. Now Brenda's belly is getting bigger, but no one seems to notice any change in her figure. She's 12 years old, and she's having a baby, in love with the molester who's sexing her crazy. And yet, and also, she thinks that he'll be with her forever, and dreams of a world with the two of them are together. Whatever. He left her, and she had the baby solo. She had it on the bathroom floor and didn't know so. She didn't know what to throw away and what to keep. She wrapped the baby up and threw him in the trash heap. I guess she thought she'd get away wouldn't hear the cries. She didn't realize how much the little baby had her eyes. Now the baby's in the trash heap, bawling. Mama can't help her, but it hurts to hear her calling. Brenda wants to run away. Mama say, you making me lose pay, and social workers here every day. Now Brenda's got to make her own way. Can't go to her family. They won't let her stay. No money, no babysitter. She couldn't keep a job. She tried to sell crack, but ended up getting robbed. So now what's next? There ain't nothing left to sell. So she sees sex as a way of leaving hell. It's paying the rent, so she really can't complain. Prostitute found slain, and Brenda's her name. She's got a baby. You know, some have cynically said that Tupac monetized people's strategy in a very sensational way, because that story is just shocking. Well, true, uh, but there are also his defenders which claim Tupac was exposing a, a brutal reality that was being ignored, uh, that you know, he put a spotlight on inner-city realities that needed to be exposed for what they were, and he did, and he shocked America, uh, so much so that Vice President Dan Quayle at the time publicly stated that the production and distribution of Tupacalypse Now was an irresponsible corporate act. He went on to say, and you know, I want to quote him on this. He said this, There is absolutely no reason for a record like this to be published by a respectable record company. It has no place in our society. Well, you can only imagine with a comment like that, people would run to the stores and (laughs) (laughs) 
what? <laughs> now, we this are. would do – how could that do anything but make Tupac famous? Well, that's at the same time they had started putting explicit uh, lyric warnings on albums, and it would make albums skyrocket instead of tank. But, you know, uh, his it, it did just that for him, and his rise to fame was meteoric, meteoric if also not problematic. I mean, he was at the center of a national debate about the role of this new genre of music, hip-hop, that was uh, uniquely identified with violence. And on one side, leaders were expressing what Dan Quayle was expressing, you know, disgust at this raw violence in the music. And However, there was another side challenging what they considered a hypocritical attack on just one kind of violence in entertainment when all of the arts were and really still are monetizing and glamorizing violence. I mean, to this day, over 90% of movies contain some glamorized violence and 85% of video games contain violence. And, you know, cartoons targeting children have anywhere from an average of 25 to 200 acts of documental violence every hour. And mostly violence in these areas uh, is presented as consequence free. And, you know, in fact, most children will witness um, over 200,000 violent acts before they turn 18. And the argument was, and it still is, that there is violence in every aspect of entertainment. And that has really nothing to do exclusively with rap music. So the violence in rap music was and is unique in that it depicts the realities of the urban poor, which really is incredibly violent. And, you know, from this perspective, the music is arguably uh, kind of cathartic in a way for young people to uh, voice their anger and their frustration about social, political, and economic realities that they're born into and they get trapped into. It's the reality that is violent that's expressed in music. You're really not the music creating the violence. Which illustrates, once again, that nothing is simple. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> and I would argue that Tupac's music contains you know, both violence, can, serious uh gratuitous violence, but other times the violence is social commentary. Uh, Tupac embodies this kind of contradiction, not just in his music, but also in his life. He had this deep sense of political and social conviction that there were things that he wanted to do to change the world. But at the same time, uh, he was always in trouble with the law, and he ran with a very destructive crowd. You know, one of his political raps is also famous. It's an ode to black women titled Keep Your Head Up. It was dedicated to the daughter of a close friend, but it was also a tribute to the memory of Latasha Harlins. Gary, I know you know that name. Who was Latasha Harlins? Well, Latasha Harlins was a 15-year-old uh, black girl who was shot dead in Los Angeles by Soon Yadu, who was a Korean store owner uh, that, that occurred after a violent altercation over some shoplifting. And of course, this is always horrible, but this was, this particular story stands out because the trial of the store owner occurred between the beating of Rodney King and the acquittal of his assailants. Uh, Dew also was only sentenced to five years of probation, which outraged the African-American community. And uh, during the riots, uh, Dew's stores was burned entirely to the ground. Well, we can't read the whole rap because it's too long, but I do want to read an excerpt. It's a very famous uh, piece of art, and, and let me read it. Some say the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. I say the darker the flesh, then the deeper the roots. I give a holler to my sisters on welfare, 
Tupac cares if don't nobody else care. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot when you come around the block. Brothers clown a lot. But please don't cry. Dry your eyes. Never let up. Forgive, but don't forget, girl. Keep your head up. And when he tells you, you ain't nothing, don't believe him. And if he can't learn to love you, you should leave him. Because, sister, you don't need him. And I ain't trying to gas you up. I just call him how I see him. You don't need him. You know me makes me unhappy. What's that? When brothers make babies and leave a young mother to be a pappy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman, and our game from a woman, yeah, yeah, I wonder why we take from our women. Why we rape our women. Do we hate our women? Why, why? I think it's time to kill for our women. Time to heal our women. Be real to our women. And if we don't, we'll have a race of babies that will hate the ladies that make the babies. And since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where to create one. So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up, ladies, but keep your head up. Keep your head up, oh child. Things are going to get easier. Keep, keep your head up, oh child. It'll Things will get brighter. Keep your head up, oh child. Things are going to get easier. Keep, keep your head up, oh child. Things will get brighter. You know, this is a song. It's a call to responsibility. And that's the thing about Tupac. I mean, he wrote and recorded uh, in the roughly five years of his career 713 songs. And he recorded 150 songs just in the last year of his life. And he was a workaholic, famous you know, for spending up to 12 hours at a time in a recording studio. He was also in the news uh, for the entirety of his short public life. I mean, he made movies like the one with Janet Jackson, Poetic Justice, or with Mickey Roark, the one titled Bullet. I mean, he dated celebrities like Madonna or Quincy Jones's daughter. Uh, but he was arrested multiple times in 1993, the same year that that song Keep Your Head Up was released. He was arrested three times. The third time was for sexual abuse. He was convicted and sent to the maximum security prison Clinton Correctional Facility. And the Clinton facility was notorious. It housed New York's most serious criminal offenders. You know, for example, the famous son of Sam killer, David Berkowitz. And uh, it was known for the violence between the prisoners and the guards and this was really one of the most terrorizing, violent environments in the United States at the time that Tupac arrived there. And while in prison, uh, Tupac released an album that was titled Me Against the World. And on, a, on that album would be what some claim is the greatest rap song ever made, titled Dear Mama. He said he did not write this song just for himself, but for the thousands of young men and women like him. And, you know, this entire album deals with pain and isolation and fear and death and you know, we won't read the entire rap because it's long, but we'll read an excerpt. You are appreciated. When I was young, me and my mama had beef. 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see her face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school and scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. I shed tears with my baby sister over the years. We was poorer than the other little kids, and even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we'd blame mama. I reminisce on the streets I caused. It was hell, 
hugging my mama from a jail cell. And who'd think in elementary, hey, I'd see the penitentiary one day. And running from the police, that's right. Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was a black queen, mama. I finally understand. For a woman, it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed. A poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it. There's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand you are appreciated. Lady, don't you know we love you, dear mama? Sweet lady, place no one above you. You are appreciated. Sweet lady, don't you know we love you? Now ain't nobody tell us it was fair. No love from my daddy because the coward wasn't there. He passed away and I didn't cry because my anger wouldn't let me feel for a stranger. They say I'm wrong and I'm heartless, but all along I was looking for a father. He was gone. I hung around with thugs and even though they sold drugs, they showed a little young brother love. I moved out and started really hanging. I needed money on my own, so I started slanging. I ain't guilty because even though I sell rocks, it feels pretty good putting money in your mailbox. I love paying rent when the rent's due. I hope you got the diamond necklace that I sent to you. Because when I was low, you was there for me and never left me alone because you cared for me. And I could see you coming home after work late. You're in the kitchen trying to fix us a hot plate. You just work in with the scraps you was given. And mama makes miracles every Thanksgiving. But now the road got rough. You're alone. You're trying to raise two bad kids on your own, and there's no way I can pay you back. But my plan is to show you that I understand. You are appreciated. Lady, don't you know we love you? And dear mama, sweet lady, place no one above you. You are appreciated, sweet lady. Don't you know we love you? A music producer by the name of Suge Knight paid Tupac's bail and got him out of Clinton. But unfortunately, Tupac's relationship with Knight would be what led to his death. And, you know, Knight was allegedly involved with gangs, and Tupac became involved with these same gangs. And something that was to become known as the East Coast-West Coast rivalry with uh, rival rapper B.I.G. Notorious. I mean, it all ended infamously in Las Vegas on September 7th, 1996. Uh, Tupac and Suge Knight went to watch a Mike Tyson fight at the MGM Grand Hotel. There was a a couple of fights between Crips and Blood gang members, and Tupac was involved. And Later that night, while at a red light, uh, a man emerged from a car and fired 13 shots. And Tupac would die seven days later. And uh, It wouldn't be until September 29th of 2023 that a man would be charged for his murder, a man by the name of Dwayne Davis, or Keefe D, as he's known by his fellow gang members. And, you know, he's not accused of pulling the trigger, but of uh, conspiring to have Tupac murdered. It's incredible for so many reasons. First of all, it's been so long. But it's also a tribute to Tupac that people still care after all these years. And we do care. His legacy has not diminished over time. It's grown. It has grown. Uh, For one, you know, he speaks for a generation and for a population that had been silenced in many ways. And, you know, he spoke about his struggles with understanding manhood, which has resonated with a lot of young men. 
He spoke about poverty, about his mother's drug addiction, about his own contradictions that he struggled to resolve. And, you know, this is a kid who started out as a socialist and ended up his life as a capitalist. And, you know, when he was confronted with this, uh, he quite honestly said that the only thing he really hated was poverty. <laughs> so that's just one example of the honesty that he's credited for having. And, and people find that rare. And they responded to him during his life and they still respond to him. In 2012, Shakur performed via a holographic image at Coachella, the music festival. Beyond the albums of his music that have been released after his death, there have been plays written about his life, films, novels, there's even a TV miniseries. Stacy Robbins has a biography that's coming out, and it took her 20 years to research and write it. The world has seen itself in Tupac. Some of it is ugly, but some of it is beautiful. And we'll end this podcast giving Tupac the last words. Not the rapper, but Tupac the poet. This little four-line poem comes out of that same collection that he penned at age 17. And with these words, we'll end. Strength is overcome by weakness. Joy is overcome by pain. The night is overcome by brightness. And love, it remains the same. And that is our tribute to the world icon, Tupac Shakur. So thank you for sharing with us in our discussion of his work. As always, please feel free to connect with us via uh, any of our social media platforms or go to our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating. Check it out on YouTube, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, share an episode with a friend. Remember, it's only when you share that we grow. Peace out.